Good evening um, and welcome to the London School of Economics, those of you who have come from outside. Uh, I'm Julian Legrand, I'm the Richard Titmus Professor uh, of Social Policy uh, in the Department of Social Policy here. Uh, and um, it's my pleasure to welcome uh, our speaker today. Just, just before I do, um, one or two items of housekeeping. Um, can you, um, I gather these days we don't switch off our mobile phones, you reduce them to silent. We don't switch them off because that enables you to tweet if you'd like to tweet. And, the, uh, and if you do, the hashtag is, uh, is hash LSE uh, titbus. Um, I encourage you to uh, do that if you so wish. Uh, it's my great pleasure today, though, to uh, introduce um, Howard Glenister, who's going to give the Richard Titmus Lecture for the Department of Social Policy. Uh, he joined the Department uh, uh, of Social Policy itself uh, in 1968. He had actually worked with Richard Titmus in the Labour Research Department, I think, before that. But Richard, at that time, was head of the department. He's going to say quite a bit about Richard, so I won't say very much about Richard Titmus, but I would just like to say a few words about uh, Howard Glenister, who is um, one of our most distinguished analysts um, of social policy. Uh, he joined the department in 1968. He became a professor in uh, 1984. Uh, he uh, was chair of the Suntory Toyota International Center of Economics and Related Disciplines uh, and, uh, from uh, 1994 to 2001. And he was uh, also um, a co-director um, of the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion. Uh, he retired, although the word is utterly meaningless in his context, uh, in 2001. Um, he's been a visiting professor um, at Berkeley, Chicago, Seattle, and the Brookings, several times the Brookings Institution in the United States. He's author of several key books um, uh, in social policy, including Bristol's British Social Policy, 1945 to present, and Paying for Welfare. He's also been advisor to several government committees, most recently the House of Lords uh, on Ageing. Uh, uh, as I say, he is, uh, he is a leading authority um, on social policy, um, a very worthy successor to Richard Titmus, and he's now going to tell us a bit more about Titmus 40 years on. Howard. Thank you. Uh, well, it's, it's something of a memory session for me. Uh, in the spring term of 1973, I just returned from sabbatical leave in Washington. It was a visit arranged with Richard Titmus's help. But when I returned, I found uh, Richard a changed man. He was frail and in the last stages of cancer, but nevertheless determined to complete uh, that spring term's lecture course. Now, we all knew that these would be Richard's last lectures, uh, and the hall was uh, standing room only if you arrived anything other than early. And it was there that I remember him uh, talking about his regular visits to Westminster Hospital, uh, his chats with Bill, uh, 
a fellow patient, blown up in the desert by Rommel, as Richard put it, and a passionate gardener like Richard. Now this chance relationship uh, encapsulated for Titmus what, was the, what the National Health Service was all about. Here was a disabled soldier and a university professor uh, being treated in neighbouring beds. There was no health insurer's limit to Bill's care. No pre-existing condition clause attached. So who was Titmus? Some myths about his early life were dispelled at the Social Policy Association conference this summer. Uh, he didn't come from a bankrupted family of farmers, uh, but he did leave school at 14. Uh, he took a course in bookkeeping uh, at the local commercial college, and he then became an office boy uh, and went on to be a clerk in the local uh, insurance firm. And his small earnings were necessary to sustain his mother and his brother and sister uh, because his father died shortly afterwards. So whatever the accuracy or inaccuracy about some of the accounts, this was a pretty unpromising start. And what followed through the 1930s was a journey of self-education, work with the Eugenic Society, and writing that was increasingly noticed. He was fascinated by the relationship between social conditions, fertility, and health. And he formed a close friendship with the epidemiologist, uh, Jerry Morris, who died not all that long ago, and was his friend throughout the rest of his life. So, a few weeks of bookkeeping were the only thing in the way of education that Titmus received for the rest of his life. He remained with the same firm, studying and researching in the spare time, until he was asked to join the Cabinet Office in 1942 to write the Second World War history of social policy. It was an inspired and somewhat uh, courageous choice by the economic historian who was leading that group, Professor Hancock. And the, uh, the resulting official history, The problem of, Problems of Social Policy, was published in 1950 and it, its reputation gained Titmus the first chair in social administration here at school. Now, the theme of that war history was to recur through Titmus's later writings. How did a society that was under such pressure hold together? What makes those living in a modern society feel some kind of common identity? Titmus simply didn't recognise academic boundaries. He'd not been initiated into any of them. Yet here he was observing policy at the centre of a very powerful centralised state. And those two things, I think, uh, shaped his life's work. But Timus's legacy was not just his, but the 
legacy of the close group that he put together. T.H. Marshall, who was in many ways his predecessor at the school, uh, wrote an appreciation of Titmus's life shortly after he died in the British Journal of Sociology. And he said, he had a flair for selecting brilliant colleagues and his impressive assurance and magnetic personality made them readily accept his invitation to join him and what soon became to be seen as his circle. Now, his circle uh, included Brian Abel Smith, Peter Townsend, and David Donison. And each of those became international figures in their own right. Brian Abel Smith, who was an expert on healthcare and advised the WHO around the world. Peter Townsend, who of course became the defining expert on poverty and disability and much else. And then there was David Donison, who was an international housing expert. And they were helped, or Richard's, Richard's research assistants in particular, were Tony Lyons, who I think he told me he's going to be here. Oh, I can't sit, you see. Here he is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and Mike Reddin, who uh, unfortunately died quite recently. And between them, that group produced work that was very important in shaping social policy, really for the next 20 years. In, re in uh, researching Peter Townsend's life recently, uh, I came across a note in his diary after he'd been to supper with Titmus and his wife Kay in their Ealing Twyford Avenue house. And this is what uh, Peter said. Uh, we all like to think we could be critical of our own society. But Richard asks questions about things everybody else accepts. And it's this and his integrity, rather than mental brilliance, which makes him the one surgeon under whom I want to practice. Quite a statement for somebody uh, like Townsend. Now, Above all, Titmus took an all-embracing view of the subject. I remember being summoned to his office in the top floor of the East Building shortly after I'd been appointed to the department in, as Julian said, 1968. And uh, rather nervously, I said to him, uh, what, what part of social policy am I meant to be teaching this, this autumn? and fixing me with those piercing eyes that he had, he said, Howard, you can never teach part of social policy. It has to be taught as a single whole. And to his great enduring credit, that's what Titmus did for the rest of his career. So for those of us who fell under his spell, um, as I did all those years ago, the significance of his contribution then seemed obvious. But what does it look like now, 40 years on? Now, Richard had critics when he was alive, of course, and many more since he's died. Marxist writers like John Savile in the 1960s argued that social policy was an entirely inadequate instrument to combat poverty. 
and the degrading effects of being poor. It could never seriously dent the major forces that were at work in society. At the other extreme, there was the Institute of Economic Affairs, whose hostility to Richard's ideas and the conflict between them brought them to the edge of the law courts on several occasions. The contest between Richard and the IEA has been very well documented uh, by the French economist Philippe Fontaine. And it's clear from Fontaine's study that the IEA saw him as a real threat. Uh, as Ben Jackson from Oxford has pointed out recently, Titmus was the first academic to really take the Institute of Economic Affairs seriously. And, but of course, later uh, critics emerged within the social policy community itself. Bob Pinker was one of them, sitting near the front. Uh, to Bob, social policy was too prescriptive in its old form, in a Titmusian form, if you like. And it was too dismissive of market exchange in general. Yet social policy depended, as Bob rightly pointed out, for its very existence on the revenue generated by this despised economic sector. Others argued that Titmus's determination to reduce the stigma of receiving social security benefits had been a bit naive, ignoring the incentives to gain the system. David Reisman, in his book on Titmus, remarked, the severest criticism of Titmus on selection without stigma is that it would have been far easier to achieve if every man were a Titmus. Or there's Frank Field's comment, the fallen side of mankind was written out of the script. Or Alan Deacon's paper, Titmus 20 years on, made those same kind of reflections but in a, in a much more balanced way. His paper, Titmus 20 years on, is, I must say, uh, I swiped his title from. Uh, now, I think it's simply wrong to assume that Titmus was unconcerned about the perverse in incentives that welfare policy could produce if it was either badly framed or badly administered. And that was precisely his objection to extensive means testing. It was a disincentive to work and saving, after all. And I think he would have become increasingly worried about the incentives to stay on benefit that began to build up. But you have to remember that he was writing in a period of super full employment. Now the Supplementary Benefits Commission, of which he became deputy chairman, ran re-establishment centres for the long-term unemployed, designed to revive the will to work, as it said in their... Uh, their uh, uh, objects of, I don't know what you call them today, the objects of the organisation. Uh, supplementary benefit was conditional on attendance at these re-establishment centres. And I never heard Titmus object. For him, it was the way these people were treated with compassion and skill to help them back into the labour market that mattered. Hence all the effort that Titmus put into uh, the training of supplementary benefit officers 
I remember every, uh, every summer the staff of the department were, uh, in bold, uh, were, were required really to uh, help out at supplementary benefit uh, summer schools. Uh, and we learnt a lot more, I think, than <laughs> supplementary benefit officers. Anyway, um, a much more fundamental criticism, however, has been levelled at Titmus more by people who are more generally sympathetic to his position. Uh, and that, that criticism uh, was that Titmus never managed to put together a coherent theory of welfare. Ramesh Mishra, in a book published 20 years ago now, argued that mainstream social policy never managed to advance a centrist theory that could compare in its rigour with that advanced either by Marxists or by the free market liberals. Others reached similar conclusions in the 1980s. Raymond Plant, Peter Taylor Gooby and others. And more recently, John Offer saw strands of 19th century idealism in uh, Titmus's work, but implies that really he never managed to knit a well-fitting jumper out of these strands. And Titmus's theoretical stance was elusive, as Ben Jackson puts it. And that failure left the welfare state weakly defended when the free marketeers began their attack in the 1950s. Now what I would like to do is to at least question that central charge that's been made over those years. So what was Titmus's basic framework of ideas? And what was new about them? And how well has it survived? Now I use the phrase a basic framework of ideas because I grant those critics uh, the argument that he, had, that, that he advanced no tightly organised, framed, fully developed academic theory. The origins that, that I've described may very well explain that. Perhaps he was just too busy running a department. Uh, there was in those days uh, only one professor of social policy. I gather today there are rather more. Uh, but I would want to argue that he did set up a framework that has stood the test of time. And it's led others to develop it. And I think it's now easier to see its coherence and its virtues than it was perhaps 40 or 20 years ago. For me, the strength of Richard's framework is that it was based on three foundations. Three legs, if you will. It was in part unabashedly moral, it was in part political, and in part it was economic. Previous justifications for social policy had rested on at least one or two of those legs. And on the whole, I'd rather sit on a three-legged stool than a two-legged one, let alone a one-legged one. Now, the crucial third leg that Titmus supplied, I think, was economic. And it resulted, I think, importantly from Titmus's long association and partnership with Brian Abel Smith. And his, his biography is to be published next month by Sally Sheard. Now, Brian Abel Smith was a young uh, Cambridge economist. 
uh, who was in the first instance working for the National Institute of Social and Economic Research. And together they provided the Gillibo Committee with their economic evidence. Gillibo Committee being published in 1956 on the cost of the National Health Service. And there's a major book which accompanied it, which was Titmuss and Abel Smith's economic evidence. And that collaboration between the two of them became a lifetime partnership. So, the first leg of uh, Titmuss's uh, tripod, the moral case, that he set out, first of all, in his 1951 inaugural lecture, and then extended in the Social Division of Welfare lecture four years later. All individuals, uh, Titmuss claimed, have basic needs, and, as he put it, necessary mutual relations. And these arise by virtue of their living and belonging to a given community. To deny any individuals access to these needs or relations demeaned them. It reduced their individuality and caused, as he put it, social and psychological distress. Now those needs clearly depended to some degree on the society to which an individual belonged, but they would surely include adequate shelter, having enough income not to be excluded from the crucial life of that society, to have sufficient education, uh, to be able to access health care and to enjoy a, a safe home life. And that, of course, gave rise to a whole series of debates about whether that was right, how you define these needs, how you measured them and so on. But Titmus argued that they couldn't be set uh, in stone or indeed deduced from some philosophical theory or other. It was the job of social administrators to ascertain what they, those needs were and to expose the distress their absence caused. So it was a kind of continuous cycle. You debated this, you discussed it in public, these needs were revised, the political system responded or didn't respond, and you as the social administrator was in some sense at the key of this cycle. It had to be a continuous process. A simple law, moreover, to require that these needs were met in some level, some level of cash benefit provided, was not enough. The way it was delivered was absolutely crucial. It had to be non-stigmatic and non-judgmental, but it was delivering it that was as important as defining it. Now, how does one illustrate that, that last point? Well, I remember in one lecture... Uh, he described a recent visit he'd made to a recipient of supplementary benefits. Uh, she was about to give birth and an official had told her that a pram would be supplied under the Commission's discretionary powers. Her face lit up. It would, of course, be a reconditioned second-hand pram, the official described. Her face fell. Well, Titmus told his audience of students, in the future I'm going to recommend to the Supplementary Benefits Commission that there should be a single cash payment to this woman, or to women like her, to purchase a pram themselves. Well, ah, profligate, naive, hardly meet the 
requirements of the Daily Mail headline tomorrow. Uh, I leave all of that for you to judge and we may come back to it. But that was pure titmus. Uh, if somebody is eligible for help, treat them with respect. Now, it's, it's perfectly true that Titmus never rigorously defined need. And I think partly because he saw it as this kind of continuous process. But over the last 40 years, others have begun to do so in quite considerable detail and rigour. Ian Goff and Len Doyle did so 20 years ago in their book, A Theory of Human Need. And Amartya Sen has, of course, been involved in the same kind of endeavour, you might argue, elaborating a set of capabilities, valuable things that people can do and be, that are crucial to an individual's identity. And Tanya Burkhardt and Polly Visit have linked Sen's ideas to the notion of basic human rights and have investigated how people think about them. However, I think what remains, despite all of that long work, which has now given, as it were, some rigour and depth to his initial instinct, uh, what was, remains Titmusian is his insistence that it's not enough to create a theoretical need or establish it in some sense. It's essential to study, not just talk about, study the human dignity within which the law is interpreted and the services administered. So, let's move on to Titmus's second leg, the political theory leg, if you will. A government that ensured that those basic needs were met with humanity would inspire confidence in, in the political system. It would, hence, I think, cement good governance. And that, in its turn, would make democracy viable. And I think that's the message that pervades Titmus's official history of the Second World War, which I think is an overlooked and somewhat unappreciated book. In it, we have repeated reflections on collective action that was taken during the war to secure the population's needs. Government assumed a measure of direct concern for the health and well-being of the population, Titmus argued which, by contrast with that of the 1930s, is little short of remarkable. And as a result, as Titmus pointed out, infant mortality and stillbirths actually fell during the Second World War. And why did this happen? Well, again I quote, regular employment, regular sums for housekeeping, food and clothes and other necessities, stable prices, all of this, not for a period of weeks, but for years. Now, although people had been predicting social collapse um, in the face of nightly bombing and so on, uh, that didn't happen. The social fabric held, and it held, as Titmus suggested anyway, because population's basic needs were being met. Now, I think the role of the state in all of this was probably overstated. <coughs> Individuals' own guts and bloody-mindedness, if you like, in the face of attack, played a large part. And all kinds of other glue exists which hold societies together are not just state uh, institutions. Families, neighbours, local churches, 
voluntary organisations, trade unions indeed. I don't think Titmus would really disagree with all of that, but his contention was that a shared sense of social justice was a necessary condition for those other binding agents to work. Without, those, without that, these other ties, religion, local community loyalties and so on, would become disuniting, even murderous. And the history of Northern Ireland in the past 40 years is just but one example. Titmus didn't much use the term social justice. Rawls's book had only just been published just before he died. At, though he did commend it in that last series of lectures to his students. But for Titmus, a sense of justice came not merely from fair allocations in Rawlsian terms, but from the nature of the institutions doing the work. And those institutions had to foster mutual relations. And that was the theme that he elaborated in the gift relationship, the study of the National Blood Doning Service. And this allowed people to, the chance to give or not to give to unseen strangers. A market in blood, by contrast, would set people free from the conscience of obligation. Now, Joanne Costa-Font and colleagues here um, have shown in a recent paper that more people in many countries are prepared to give blood, driven by what they call the warm glow of giving, than respond to cash payments. We don't, to generalise a bit more, we don't give up our time to help out at Tesco's or Barclays Bank or any other such agency out of love or duty. So be very, very careful with the institutions that generate altruism. Michael Sandel uh, ends his recent book, What Money Can't Buy, by saying, democracy does not require perfect <coughs> equality, but it does require that citizens share a common life. That seems to me exactly Titmus's argument. Which brings me to the third leg of Titmus's three-pronged argument. Markets have severe limits, especially in those parts of the economy that finance those basic needs. Uh, and Titmus and Abel Smith went a long way to point to a series of market failures long before economists showed much or indeed, I think I would argue, any interest in them. Just let me give you a few examples. Most of us are bad at thinking about the future, uh, especially planning for retirement and long-term care. We need help, or compulsion indeed, to do so in our own interests. Now, behavioural economists have recently developed a whole body of literature on exactly that theme. Second, pension companies handle people's investments in ways that are simply not understood by those people who are contributing to those pension schemes. Titmus wrote a whole pamphlet about this called The Irresponsible Society. Uh, and we've now got not only an economic literature on all of that, but we've got scandals to attest to it. Thirdly, he saw employers playing a crucial role 
in providing welfare, pensions and sickness benefit, but only for some. And as Titmuss argues, if that wasn't to be a source of major inequity, the state should secure a minimum occupational system so that occupational benefits of that kind were available at some level to everybody. Now, I think you can see the Turner Commission's proposals for pension reform based precisely on that kind of logic. And, of course, they underpin the arguments for Obamacare. Fourthly, uh, and I'll stop with this fourth example, although I could go on, there's, a whole, there's the whole question of tax relief to which he drew attention in 1954. You paid less tax if you had children, or were buying a house on a mortgage, or were contributing to a pension scheme. At its height, this subsidy to owner occupation, if you like to think of it in those terms, amounted to 1% of the GDP. But of course you got it, more of it, the more expensive your mortgage and the higher your income. And it took a decade and a half before economists responded to that insight. And they began to publish tax expenditure figures in the budget and then in the public expenditure documents. Uh, but mortgage tax relief was only phased out finally in the year 2000. And pension tax relief, of course, continues, though there are attempts to, as it were, cap it at the top. Now, what I'm arguing here is that Titmus was between sort of two and five years ahead of the game in all of these sets of economic notions, uh, which have now, as it were, been followed up um, by economists. And I can, I can just see, almost see, Richard's sort of rueful grin uh, if he were now to be told that probably the discipline that had pursued his ideas more thoroughly than any other were indeed the economists. Um, now, anyway, to have shaped any one of those three legs, the moral, the political, or the economic, would have been a considerable achievement in its own right. But I think we now more clearly understand that those things are all related together. Individual freedoms, markets, and economic prosperity depend on trusted legal systems, secure contracts, and stable governments. But those in turn depend on governments ensuring that, there are, that the morally central aspects of life are not denied to any class of citizens. And that can't be achieved without governments involving themselves in ensuring that that happens. Markets will not do it alone. And that won't happen humanely if government action is only targeted on the poor. Separate discriminatory services for poor people have always tended to be poor quality services, to use the the only phrase, I think, in Titmus, which ever gets kind of widely quoted. Now, there are problems with all of that, but I think there's an important insight. We've also learned, of course, much less uh, encouragingly, that if you can't persuade your populations to pay for the consequences of those meetings of basic needs and so on, they're not 
you can't persuade them to pay for the services, you can also destabilise governments. So my claim is that Titmus did begin a compelling framework of middle ground ideas that has effectively evolved over the years. In contrast, it seems to me, T.H. Marshall's contribution has aged. The steady march of citizenship rights that uh, are charted in Marshall uh, is not really explained to my satisfaction in Marshall and somehow stopped in 1948. Beveridge um, has a different claim to fame. He captured the public mood in his famous report. He was in the right place at the right time and he took that opportunity quite brilliantly. But as an originator of new ideas, well, I think not. Marxism has lost its appeal precisely because uh, his prescriptions, its prescriptions didn't work, I think. Uh, others may disagree. But it, our faith in unbridled markets um, has also surely taken a knock. So the middle ground, as it were, with deeper foundations has, I think, um, uh, got more mileage than some of those writing uh, 20 or 30 years ago gave it credit for. But Titmus wasn't entirely right either. Uh, nor, indeed, did his circle all agree with him. He said very little about gender or family policy or the role of the voluntary sector which was perhaps a bit odd given his emphasis on giving. Nor did he discuss uh, the social effects that the scale of caring or its social and economic importance. Nor indeed did he ever say much about education. But I think in his defence, all of these themes have been taken up by what some people who interviewed me recently called second generation social policy people. Um, social policy writers have taken up all of those themes and some of them are in the audience now. Um, and in ways that seem to me consistent with uh, that basic framework, certainly not destructive of it. But there are times when Titmus seems to be implying that all economic or market relations are evil and that only public service ones are good. And anybody who's spent their time uh, investigating the workings of local housing departments or what actually goes on in hospitals or the relationship between health and social services departments, once you look up close at many of these organisations, they are not uh, what one might hope they are. Uh, and some of those presumptions of the virtues of public sector organisations came under question very early on by people like David Donison, who worried about local authorities' virtual monopoly as local landlords in poor areas. You had no choice but the, the local council. And Brian Abel Smith also worried about the weak clout that public service users had in the system. And he set these worries out in a Fabian pamphlet he published in 1964, uh, just before the 1964 election. And I remember I had to read it as 
how did I brief local candidates on this who are tramping the, the fields uh, fighting the 1964 general election? Brian argued that in a world of growing consumer choice, denying choices to service users would lose middle class support. And without that, you couldn't sustain universal services. And moreover, service quality would suffer without choice. Brian said, if we were all saints, we wouldn't need to threaten to withdraw our custom. But we're not all angels. So long before uh, Julian was talking about knights and knaves, um, in running public services, Brian was talking uh, about angels. So um, there are also, I think, parts of Titmus's work that lead me to suspect he might have had some of the same concerns. Take the history of evacuation during the Second World War. Titmus describes two phases. The first was the evacuation of whole schools out of places like London to the countryside or to smaller towns. Whole schools were moved with their teachers. Uh, the pupils in those schools uh, that were already there were taught in the morning and the children who came from London were taught in the afternoon. And this uh, was a fantastic exercise. And my wife and I can both remember we're old enough for that. Uh, both remember a crocodile of evacuees coming down our roads. And, you know, one by one, one or two children would be taken out of the crocodile and placed in one of the houses. Uh, two girls arrived, uh, I remember, in our house. Uh, horrors. Um, but, but it was a logistical success. I mean, it worked extraordinarily. You think of moving millions of children around the country and getting them educated, taking their teachers with them. But, of course, many evacuees subsequently drifted home. The next round of evacuation was different, or partly different. The government introduced a scheme of travel vouchers that families could use to negotiate where these children to, were to go with either relatives or friends in the country. And Titmus thought that was rather sensible. It seemed to work and it was more popular. Then, in another essay that Titmus wrote in the 1950s, he worried about the e extreme power that was building up in the hands of consultants in, in hospitals. And he thought, he talked about in that essay, the way in which uh, in the past, before the National Health Service, these consultants had had to rely on GPs for their income, the income they gained from uh, these, uh, these, these patients being transferred to the hospital and attending the, not being transferred, but having a choice of consultant to go to and therefore carrying their income with them, as it were. So there are, there are hints in Titmus. Titmus wasn't as uh, hidebound and rigid in some of his views as some of the literature about him suggests, I think. And, of course, in the recent past, governments have introduced 
a whole series of initiatives that are aiming to improve the standards of poorly performing public agencies. And they include, I don't need to go through over these in any detail, but just giving users wider choices, introducing new providers to challenge existing ones, publishing quality rankings and so on for hospitals and schools and ambulances. And there's some evidence that some of that does indeed improve the performance of the worst performers. But some of that could also have perverse effects. Unreliable, falsely set targets for children in schools, for example, who, if you don't think they're going to get the target A-levels, you concentrate on, you don't concentrate on them, you concentrate on the people you think are going to pass. So all of that, I think, are ways in which governments have tried to respond to some of these criticisms, but I think the evidence is that we're still stumbling towards understanding what mix of sticks and carrots, choice and altruism, is most effective. So a debate about how to strike that balance between these sort of somewhat competing visions of public services is, I think, exactly what Titmus would be asking us to have. Well, uh, to conclude, I was searching my bookshelves recently uh, for some classic texts to give my grandson to read in his gap year. At his request, I have to say, I wasn't saying you, oh, granddad, could you? Uh, anyway, so I sort of, I began pulling old books down from my uh, bookshelves, and I lighted upon Malthus's 1798 first essay on population. And I opened it and flicked it through in a way I suppose I hadn't done for uh, 40 years. Um, and I found a passage that I'd marked, and it read, it was about the poor laws, and it read, dependent poverty ought to be held disgraceful. Such a stimulus seems to be absolutely necessary to promote, to, to promote the happiness of the great mass of mankind. Well, that is a view of the world which Titmus spent his whole life uh, battling for or battling against. But that battle uh, still evidently has to be won. One only has to read, as it were, the occasional Daily Mail to see that that battle is still to be won. Thank you. Well, thank you, Howard, very much. Um, now, uh, we have a few minutes for questions. There is a reception afterwards to which everyone is invited. Uh, but before you can get your glass of wine, um, I think we'd like to have a little bit of debate and discussion about some of the, thing, the stimulating things that uh, Howard has been telling us. So um, we are open to uh, questions or comments on what we've been hearing. Let me, let me begin just by, by so just making a quick comment that I agree with you that Titmus was not often as, as, as in some sense, naive about knightliness uh, uh, that he is portrayed. I, I did read his, um, 
I read in some detail his work on Mauritius. Uh, where he, he expresses his horror at the way that uh, doctors were behaving. Doctors at the time derived most of their income in Mauritius from selling prescription drugs. And uh, they uh, behaved in quite a, a knavish fashion in so doing. Yes, there was a gentleman there. Perhaps people could say who they are. Hi, uh, yeah. Um, my name is James Evans. I'm from the uh, Government Economic Service. Um, I kind of, obviously it's quite hard to take entitlements away from people and I'm thinking of, you know, pasties and caravans and child benefit and like most recently. So when you, when Titmus, I think you were saying, doesn't define what a need is, is that essentially arguing for a constantly expanding welfare state given how difficult it is to remove benefits? Well, I think Titmus would have uh, thought that, I, mean, I think he was presuming that, that, that life always moved on in a, in a rational and uh, expansive way. Um, so, I mean, I think the implication, you see, that, that the thing that comes through in that inaugural lecture is that it's our job to enlighten the public who can't see that there's this suffering going on down there. And so you reveal, you put the searchlight on, as uh, Evelyn Burns once said, you put the searchlight on an aspect of life uh, and then you make the public aware of it and you then move on. I mean, there's nowhere in Titmus the proposition that, well, you know, we moved on. Well, perhaps we can give that up. I mean, perhaps, you know, the disabled, are we've you know, let's forget about the disabled now. And you're right that there is this long-run uh, kind of accumulation of need which is a kind of implied in that first lecture, uh, which comes on to my, you know, my last point. So I'm mean, this kind of incremental budgeting problem <laughs> that you get into as a consequence of that. Um, and I, I mean, Brian worried about that, but I don't, <laughs> Brian Abel Smith worried about that because he had to negotiate all these new propositions that were coming up with the Treasury in one advisor capacity or the other. But I think Richard did see it as a constantly evolving expansion, actually. Um, to, you know, um, and raises the question, um, you know, what's the limit and so on and so on. So I think the implication in your question is, is kind of well taken. <laughs> Other questions? Comments? Oh, yes, Bob. Thank you, for a, thank you for a very, very stimulating uh, lecture. I'd make, like to make three points. One, I think you persuade me that if Richard Titmus had lived longer, he might well have developed his model of welfare, his theoretical framework, uh, very much along the lines that you've outlined. I think probably the two parts of his writings that indicate the way he was going was the relationship that he developed between notions of universality and of selectivity, a universalist framework, and secondly, some further developments along the notions of gift relationships and so on. Um, I think one other point, the third point really, um, your comments on Tom Marshall, one of the mysteries to me is that 
um, there was so very little interaction between Richard and Tom. And it's partly a function of age that Richard died very early in 1973, wasn't it? Tom Marshall died much older at the age of 82. But the interesting contrast between these two, if you like, key figures in the development of our discipline were where they differed in their normative emphasis. Tibnus epitomized all that was best in the um, uh, unitarist model of welfare in which the state played an absolutely major role, um, unqualified. Um, whereas Tom was much more of a pluralist and I think that an encompassing theory of the discipline would have to take account of those two traditions and if I can mix my metaphors with your three legs to your stool. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no, I, that, that, I entirely take that point, uh, Bob. What I, I, I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that social policy ought to be a unitarian faith in which the Titmus, the titmus you know, model is the only one that people in social policy take for granted and you know, it has to be built into a much... I mean, social policy now uh, is a much broader church and all sorts of competing ways of thinking about it are, are you know, very much part of the subject. I was making a rather narrower point, which is to criticise Titmus for sort of not having any intellectual construct. Uh, was wrong. I mean, you may disagree with Titmus's, and you say, well, I want, an, I want a fourth leg in this, which is the voluntary sector. I think I mentioned that. It's very odd, really, that um, Titmus doesn't have um, a theory of wealth, you know, a voluntary welfare, if you like. Um, I mean, it's something I've written about uh, and very keen on. I think it's a critical part of social policy. Um, uh, so I entirely take your point. I, but I wasn't trying to say this is all in, but this is what social policy is. Merely that I think Titmus has got, been too readily dismissed, if you like, on the grounds that he didn't have a framework. You, you did have a framework. You may very well disagree with it. That's fine. But there was a coherent framework there. Yes. Thank you. I'm Sally Sheard. I've just finished writing the Brian Abel Smith biography. Can, Sally, can I just pause a second? Can people hear it? Is the microphone working? Can people hear it at the back? It is on. It just doesn't seem to look better. You have to okay. hold it quite I'll close. Hold it, I'll hold it closer. I'm Sally Sheard. I've just written the Brian Abel Smith biography. And David Donison helped me a great deal. He gave me a very useful lead when he said, you need to look at the social policy in the 1950s when Richard Titmus entered into it and he said one of the reasons he was so successful at LSE was because he was marginalized he was left alone he was never burdened with being on committees <laughs> and obviously that's changed considerably. I wondered if you would like to comment on how you think Richard Titmus would see the University of 2013. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's had lots of professorial colleagues, that's for sure, which he, <laughs> which he, which he did, wouldn't have had. Um, you know, the, the, uh, he was... A, I mean, David's point that he wasn't on any school committee... He kept himself apart. He kept the department apart from the school. 
And I think that was a grave mistake because it led the department at some points to be seen as disposable. I mean, there came a point when that might have very well have happened. And it happened because of Titmus's refusal to get involved in the rest of the school. He sort of despised other people. And other people in the school, I mean, there's this famous quote about you know, Lord Robin saying, how are, your, how are your midwives, Richard? Or Titmus, he would have called Titmus, how are your midwives? Um, and, you know, so Titmus thought that those were all, you know, I don't have anything to do with people like Robins. The consequence of that was that, that you know, the department wasn't part of the school and like anything like, you know, if you, that's an unuseful bit of the school which is, you know, doing things like looking after midwives, they you know, and the, you need a business school, well, you know, you get rid of them. So, although it helped Richard in a sense, I suppose, I mean, that's David's point, I think the long-run consequence of that strategy would have been absolutely disastrous. Which is why some of us try to do the opposite. Yes, I might just comment the department is now, of course, the second largest in the school. <laughs> and Caroline Woodroff, a former member of the department a long time ago, could you hold the microphone very close because I think it is quite... I'm okay. Caroline Woodroff, a former member of the department a long time ago. Could you say more about his absence of interest in gender? Do you think it was simply generational? Yes, I think, I think it's that. I mean, you know, Anne, if Anne Oakley would give us a whole lecture about this if she were here. Um, I... I mean, I'm, I'm just not a, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Jane Lewis or somebody else here may, may be in much better position to talk about this than I am. I think it was essentially generational, yes. But, you know, to give him credit, um, there are bits uh, where he talks about the family and women's role, you know, in a, in a rather uh, insightful way. They're very small bits of his work, but nobody else was in that sort of field was, uh, was right. I mean, there were, you know, Fabian Women's Group and so on were doing good social policy work at various points in the early part of the 20th century, uh, which Titmus didn't, you know, never got into the literature, and it didn't get into the literature of anybody else in social policy. I think I should be, I should be put right by um, <laughs> women colleagues, I'm sure. But, um, no, I think I would not want to lay this too heavily at uh, Titmus's door. Jane, do you, do you have any comment on this? <laughs> well, I hate to raise the vexed this issue This is Professor Jane Lewis. Um, yes. But uh, that was definitely a gender conflict within Absolutely. the department. Absolutely. Um, and a very interesting one. Yep, yep, but, I mean, again, the context in terms of the social policy issues that um, Titmus was interested in, I mean, the context is this is the heyday of the male breadwinner model, which was, appeared to be entirely settled, if you like. So it was too early in many ways for uh, 
precise issues to do with, say, gender and benefits or whatever to come onto his agenda. Nevertheless, there's a real problem that he did not take on board um, the issue of women's role in care work in families, which you did mention briefly, Howard. I mean, that was a huge absence, I yeah. think. And it would have fitted with quite a bit of, of what he was wanting to argue yeah, about uh, yeah. giving and reciprocity and all the rest. I mean, so it, it's strange in a yeah. way, but it was invisible. <laughs> Above all, it was invisible, and it remained invisible until in, within social policy until a lot of us, including people here like Claire Ungerson and Jane Miller, started talking about it. No, I, 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 mean, I, I can't add to that, Jane. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my name's Paula Hurst. Um, I'm a LSE alumni. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts really on what you think uh, Titmus might think about the Shirker versus Striver debate and um, what he would recommend is done about it, given some of your comments around the need for respect. Well, uh, I, mean, I, 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 mean, I think I've hinted at what I, uh, my views are there. Um, I, the, he was, I think it is true to say, but not very uh, willing to, I think Alan's made this point, uh, I think he'd been so affected by uh, the... Um, uh, the, the way in which um, clients, um, you know, were, were rights were not effectively taken account of, and the in trying to trying to put right, as it were, the um, the stigma effects of of being on be, on benefit and the poor law and all that. So he was he was part of a generation which was trying to put that right. And so it's really quite difficult to say what, you know, given that he was driven by something that he saw needed to be put right and the Supplementary Benefit Commission must not be of the kind that it ought to be learning how to be not to be judge, judgmental and so on and so on. The fact that um, how, how, how that applies to a world in which, you know, in Merthyr Tidbill, nobody's got a job and uh, what do you do about this and, the, and, and change judgments that people make about, well, okay, it may be all right now to be on welfare. You've so been so successful in a sense. You then have to think of other ways of organising the system so that you know, his re-establishment centres, as it were, <laughs> have to take on a new form and a bigger form. I think it's, you know, it's a classic historical problem. There's quite difficult to see I mean, he was coming at a set of problems that he'd experienced and thought you know were crucial and they weren't the same problems as we're facing today so his insight on what today's problems are is in some ways not all that helpful um, or difficult to imagine and you're just making it up if you try and answer a question like that um, but I think it is you know it is interesting that um, if you, I was look, reading the other day through these re-establishment centres and what they did and what they were trying to do and what kind of things went on inside them. Of course, they were dealing with a very small number of people because the number of long-term unemployed was about half a percent 
of the population, and most of those were, you know, had disability problems. Or you know, so you're talking then about a tiny, tiny problem. Uh, but there was an institutional mechanism, which, in, you know, if you read it, doesn't sound. It's now being done. It's now been privatised, as it were. But is is in remarkable. I mean, I was just struck by saying, well, you know, I thought that's what. I was just reminded, I'm Tony here, knows all about these things, but um, you know, I, was, I was just reminded of uh, this issue which was seen as part of the function of supplementary benefits and it was just something that was happened and this, you know, there were specially trained people who did all of these things. Tony, would you have a view on, on this issue particularly? Tony Lyons. Um, I don't think I have a view precisely on this issue, but can I raise another point? <laughs> <laughs> Your old art is there, Tony. <laughs> Which is that, I mean, I mean, I became Richard's research assistant in 1958, and the thing that I remember most about that era was that we had direct access to the Labour politicians. We sat on Labour Party um, policy making policy making committees and I think inevitably that coloured the way that Richard saw the solutions to social problems and I wonder whether, whether Howard would, would, um, would agree with that but I gather he does No I, I think that's absolutely right Tony. I mean it, it, the, the, the distance between the policy wonks in the department uh, and um, you know the politicians was you know on a breakfast supper time basis I mean that you know um, and um, that that was a very different world from the the world that we're now in um, <coughs> and to go back to Jane's point I mean what pe we're talking about the department from time to time uh, but you know this close group that I defined uh, was all male, whereas most of the rest of the department was all female, and they were social workers, and the two did not mix, uh, to put it mildly. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, we, we shouldn't be talking about the department, we're talking about a very narrow male group that surrounded Titmus. Uh, that's what we're talking about. Uh, yes, I think the next was David Lewis, and then... Mm -hmm. Just coming down. Thanks very much. Uh, David Lewis, um, I'm the head of department at the moment. Um, we're, we're often these days being urged to become uh, more engaged academics, um, engaging with... A little with closer to the microphone, sorry. Engaging, it's almost, I'm almost swallowing. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, that, you know, here we have an example of of somebody who, who managed very successfully to, to achieve a level of influence that many of us would very much like to, you know, to achieve. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the sorts of strategies that Titmus used um, and maybe um, some advice that maybe he might give present-day academics about how to engage. Well, you see, there was nobody else doing it, David. I mean, that was the point. Um, I mean, I was working for the Labour Party at the time, which is when I first met them. Uh, and there was an outreach 
the Labour Party had things called you know, policy subcommittees and you had experts on it. Um, but where did you go? Well, precious little elsewhere you could go uh, than, um, than this department because there wasn't much around other than that. Um, now you're in a world in which, you know, it's populated by pressure groups and policy studies, this, that and the other, and IPPR, and, you know, it's this whole cosmos of, of, of things in which, in our day, there was only the sun, you know, and uh, so you bloody well got warmed by the sun. I mean, you know, where, where did you go as a Labour Party? Well, you know, these... Um, and how did that happen? Um, well, um, I remember Peter Shaw going to uh, Richard Crossman because the Labour Party set up a, a group on pensions. They wanted to. They came out of a resolution from the Labour Party conference. In those days, a Labour Party conference ran policy. So if the Labour Party conference said, "You're going to put up the pension to 50 pounds," then the Labour Party was stuck with it. I mean, money could shuffle it off, that was the, you know, and uh, so there was this resolution which came up, which, which you know, it seemed to some people in the party, you know, a bit, bit, bit difficult, um, and so perhaps we get to go, where, where do we go for the expertise, and Peter Shaw, who was a young man in the research department, said, well, I happen to know somebody called Titmus, and he and his group were then introduced, and once they were there, well, kind of that was it. I said, where else did you go? Um, so I think it's, again, it's, a, it's history. It's about the time. You can't draw lessons from... You can't, I can't tell you that that's the way to do it, David, because um, the world ain't like that. Hold on, just, there's a microphone coming. <clears throat> I think this will probably have to be our last, our last uh, question. I'd just like to speak up in defence of... Uh, so, sorry... Uh, Sorry, could you say who you were? Yes. Oh, sorry. My name's Dawn Gaskell. I was um, a student in the department from 66 to 1970, undergraduate and postgraduate. Not one of the midwives, but one of trying to study the model uh, more academically. And I'd like to speak up in defence of Professor Titmus being keeping the rest of the school at bay. As a student, what we got then was the best education in a multidisciplinary approach, which now I'm told is all the rage at LSE to look at things in a multidisciplinary way. We got that 40 years ago, and we got access to, as a first year, Brian Abel-Smith, Professor Donison, and, and Baron Blackstone, I have to say, uh, which the other departments and students in LSE didn't get because it wasn't so intimate and they had their own politics to play. So I'd just like to speak up uh, in defense of that. Yeah, no, I, that strategy uh, it didn't require Titmus not to take part in the activities of the school. That's a different point. I mean, you, you're, you're, I entirely agree that he... Well, there wasn't interdisciplinarity about the rest of the school, too. I mean, the BSC Econ was much, was much more interdisciplinary than it is today, I have to say. Uh, so it was part of the zeitgeist if you like, um, but I mean the department, I mean it, 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 it may, it, what it did do was take students in with no academic qualifications at all and in fact, you know, Titmus was doing like for like 
and so one got taught by people who you know, left school at 15 and they came straight to the LSE. None of this nonsense about having to take A-levels. You know. And we then, had to we then had to do the A-level work. I mean, so we were doing both, you know, teaching master's degree and you had to teach these kids how to write who could hadn't written anything since, you know, for the last seven years. So it was bloody hard work, I tell you. <laughs> I think there was one question up there. Mm. Oh, I've got it back at last. Um, I wanted to ask a question about Richard Thomas. I don't think we can quite hear. I'm sorry, you might have to swallow the microphone. <laughs> I wanted to ask a question about Richard Titmus as a moral theorist. Um, I, I, I think... Um, Everything that's been said has emphasized the fact that he was a man of, um, of great moral sensibility. And, of course, he did write his book on human blood, um, which, to some extent, um, moved towards a tentative theory of altruism as a sort of, almost as a political theory. And I do recall that I was in the department at that time and that I and others thought maybe this was a signal that Richard was going to move in that direction. But, um, of course, there were so many practical pressures on him that he, he never really did so. But my question is, if Richard had um, developed a sort of theoretical approach to social policy rather more systematically, do you think his influence would have been greater than it in fact has been, although undoubtedly it has been very great, but would he have made a greater impact if he had concentrated more on the kind of arguments that seem to come out of his um, writing about altruism? Well, I think the practical answer to that, Josie, is no. I mean, uh, he... he uh, Politicians don't, don't take much... It depends what you mean by either. I mean, in, in the sense that he would have been perhaps a more highly regarded academic. I'm thinking of the, the influence of people like Michael Sandel, yeah. who you mentioned, yeah. who, is, who's, who's, who's globally yeah. regarded, yeah. 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 as a writer on practical political and social questions. Because yeah. of developing that kind of theory. Yeah, well, okay. Um, <laughs> I think that's... Uh, I think again about that. Think again about my answer, as I usually do when I have to talk to Josie. Um, uh, I, I think it's quite possible um, that he could have developed uh, ideas of community and ideas of the interrelationship between altruism and community. He might even have got into thinking about families and caring <laughs> um, and that might very well I, but, but um, you see he had this um, uh, non-academic non how, how well he would have gone on got on with people who would have felt that this was an interloper. I mean, if he brought it off absolutely brilliantly, I think you're absolutely right. And there, and there must be a there must be a what if question here. Uh, if he'd lived for the next 20 years, he wouldn't have had to behead the department. 
he would have had a lot of people wanting him to talk about the gift relationship instead of it being, as it were, his final act. It would have, might have been the beginning of a, a new journey uh, in which he would have been attracted people to respond to that and then developed another book in response to their criticisms and advice about that book. That's, that, I mean, I've not thought about it that way before, Josie, but uh, as usual, um, you've made me do so. It's Professor Josie Harris of the uh, University of Oxford. Um, well, I think we have to call it a day at that point. Um, I hope you will join us for a glass of wine um, outside. Um, and it remains to me, though, to thank Howard for an enormously stimulating lecture. Um, and it's actually rather inspired me to think that maybe next year we ought to have Howard Glenister one year on. <laughs> <laughs> uh,